Okay. Good to see you, Mr. Jim. All right, tonight we're going uh, to get oriented and make sure I'm not failing to go directly to Scripture as part of the mapping out and getting the big picture overview. Let's return to um, my handout. The, the, ba- the basic handout is, in fact, just a repeat of what I gave you last week and the updated version from the first week, the corrected version that I distributed last week. So uh, that's what we're going to work off of. There's a front and back copy of this. So let's go to this first. And I definitely want to do this because actually I got off on a separate interest of looking at even bigger picture maps for you. So there is a handout, which you saw on the table over there, of, for tonight specifically, of the even bigger picture maps that we may get to. Um, so I'll tell you why actually one thing that was interesting prompt on that. But first... Let's remind ourselves, we are prompted into this Old Testament overview study, of course, by the fact that our sermon series for the foreseeable significant future, uh, we're working our way through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah um, is the most, in, in many ways, the most magisterial of all the prophets. All the prophets are magisterial, but Isaiah and his book are just remarkable. I've heard in the past several teachers say that Isaiah is the largest book and largest compilation of the prophets. That's actually incorrect, okay, if you're just doing kind of a chop, chopper block kind of thing and say, well, it's 66 chapters, so it must be the longest. Yeah, but you're not looking very substantively. Jer- Jeremiah is actually, you know, notably longer as far as words and phrases, okay, the book of Jeremiah. However, um, Isaiah is, as great as Jeremiah is, uh, Isaiah is even more comprehensive. We've talked about that. And it really is, um, the book and the prophet really are the, I think, the point of reference for all the rest of the prophets and really in the bridge, as I've been saying in the sermons, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So remember that in our Big picture overview, part one. We looked at Isaiah, and let me just give you, and we'll keep going over this for the next number of weeks. Periodically, we'll touch base on how Isaiah is framed. Remember that in the Bible, and we're going to come back to this issue too some because we'll touch base on the canon again. Like I talked a lot last week about the arrangement of the canon. Whether you're talking about the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, or whether you're talking about the traditional, what we would know as the traditional Old Testament of the Protestant Old Testament with its 39 books. Regardless, Isaiah is the entry point and the first of the latter prophets. Okay, Whether you're talking about the ordering uh, that the Tanakh has with the uh, Nevi'im there in the middle, or whether you're talking about in our Bible... um, after you get through historical books, many of which would be called former prophets in the uh, Jewish Bible, when, when you get two prophets in our Protestant Old Testament, and when you get to the latter prophets, um, Isaiah is the lead. Okay? So you flow off of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and uh, for our purposes, in our 39-book um, you know, Old Testament, you're going to go then to Daniel, 
you know, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all the way through. Isaiah is the lead, right? Okay, so that's really important to remember. And then like we talked about, Isaiah, uh, with 66 chapters, the typical understanding, uh, the simplest way to understand Isaiah is likely in terms of what 95% of people who study Isaiah would tell you. Um, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, and then 56 through 66. You can see that on the handout, kind of about three-quarters of the way down on part one. Okay. However, as I said, interestingly, my favorite commentator in the book of Isaiah, Matir, J.A. Matir, um, wonderful man of God, wonderful commentator, uh, went home to the Lord in 2016. He breaks up Isaiah as chapters 1 through 37. You can see that on your notes that I have for you. Under the heading, the king. Y'all see that? Then under um, 38 through 55, he's going to follow the same sequence on the the final two main segments. Um, Well, I guess through 55, so to speak. 38 through 55, the servant... Uh, and then the anointed conqueror is 56 through 66. Okay, um, let's look at, before we get back out of Isaiah, let's go ahead and look at some junctures pertaining to what, what I just mentioned. Okay? First of all, Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Let's just pause right there and remember or note several things. Isaiah is ministering and living in the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay? So, tribes of Judah, most, most of Benjamin, kind of Simeon by default, kind of and um, the active Levites, active you know, members of the tribe of Levi. That's the southern kingdom. With the capital of Jerusalem, uh, these kings that he's mentioning are in the line of King David. He's dealing with the temple and the kings in the line of King David, what you would typically think of as Israel. But remember, there's a majority that are not involved in this anymore. They are the northern kingdom that is called oftentimes Israel, which is very confusing, okay? Sometimes called Samaria, sometimes called Ephraim. You'll see all those terms used. And yes, I know Ephraim's a tribe, okay? But that's just the way it works in the Bible because there's, there's, it's just kind of writers are searching around to refer to this northern kingdom. It is, an, it is a, uh, basically apostate 
kingdom uh, from the get-go. Once Jeroboam says, and I think I showed you all this a couple weeks ago, um, I, I really don't want my people going down back down to Jerusalem to the temple because they'll end up thinking they need to, you know, base their lives in Jerusalem and start being loyal to the king in the line of David again. So, therefore, at Bethel and at Dan, I'm going to build my own temples, and they're going to be awesome, with golden calves. And Jeroboam literally says, <laughs> just, just like, uh, you know, just like out in the, the, the Sinai, right? To the golden calf. Behold, your God. That doesn't sound like a good start to a kingdom called Israel, does it? I mean, that just really is not good. So, but remember now, Isaiah is down in Jerusalem, in Judah, the smaller kingdom. And as we've seen, and as I'm going to keep coming back to and reminding you guys, Jerusalem's a little off the beaten path. There are parts of the northern kingdom of Israel that are a lot more valuable and a lot more important in Near Eastern terms. Okay? Jerusalem is a little city that's hard to attack up in the hills where the hick sheep herders and people who, you know, grow olives live. That's Jerusalem. I mean, on the big map. Okay? So you got to remember that. Uh, the breadbasket is up in parts of Israel, in the Jezreel Valley. In places like that, the Galilee. Some of you guys have been to um, Israel. I mean, the modern nation of Israel, right? Larry, Wanda, I know y'all went. Anybody else ever been over there, Israel? No. Okay, so Larry and Wanda, just like, I'll, I'll, what was actually prettier? I mean, not more historic. Not what was actually prettier, the Sea of Galilee or Jerusalem? Yeah. <laughs> If I said, you can have a retirement home in the middle of Jerusalem with all those people swarming all around, or up looking over the beautiful country of Galilee, which would you choose? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and commercially, it's the same kind of story, you know. Um, did you see a bunch of fields and places that look like they'd feed, feed a bunch of people right around Jerusalem and all those craggy hills around there? No way, right? When you go up, you know, when you go up north, you see that, right? When you go west. So anyway, but Isaiah is in Jerusalem. And uh, Isaiah, notice, we'll come back to this more. He has kazakh. He has, um, well, in this case it's singular, but he has visions. Okay? And he speaks to visions. He, he's not just one of the prophets where God says a few words to him. And he relays the words. Isaiah has these visions. And of course, we've been focusing, we've been spending, I think it warrants a lot of time, this massive, massively important vision that he relays to us about, uh, that we read about in Isaiah 6, right? Don't y'all consider that a pretty significant vision when he sees the Lord? I mean, I guarantee, how, how many prophets do, do you think could sit around and say, yeah, well, Isaiah, that's great for you, but let me tell you about when I saw the Lord. How many of them? What do you think? So, okay, so Isaiah has visions. You see that? And he serves over a long period of time. 
all these various kings during their reigns he serves. And as I've told you, and this is counter to the conventional wisdom that, interestingly enough, a lot of high-level commentators just seem to buy into. Um, chapter 1, verse 1, if, if you take it any, any way seriously, it's, it seems to be clear. It would be a problem for me textually. If um, Isaiah, you know, if, if this book opens with saying Isaiah... Um, you know, had, had, had his vision and served during the reign of King Uzziah, but it turns out, well, maybe a few days, or maybe right after Uzziah died. I mean, that would be problematic. So I think uh, some of this prophecy that we're seeing chronicled in kind of an anthology form of early in Isaiah, and arguably, arguably, quite a bit of this uh, covenant lawsuit that we see in chapters 1 through 5 may come before or may already be percolating before uh, the, the, the vision of commissioning uh, with the really hard call that I preached on on Sunday. Okay, So uh, that's, that's Isaiah. Now that's opening Isaiah. Now let's go to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. And it's pretty easy to see why most commentators do and most people who read Isaiah do see a big turn of the page here. There's a lot of good news, but a lot more judgment and concern about the former times, you know, that are coming and that will be fulfilled um, through verse uh, chapter 39. Then chapter 40. You, you, you open chapter 40, and all of a sudden God says, um, comfort... Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's a big, you see how that's a big, you can tell that's a big momentous thing, right? And most of you will remember that passage quite well. Um, if you sing Handel's Messiah, it's right in there, right? Okay. Um, and then, of course, we shift from that immediately into this um, John, what, what turns out to be John the Baptist, you know, fulfillment. Uh, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Basically, you've just got this, this huge statement that Isaiah is going to keep circling back around. And the prophecies that God is bringing through Isaiah, circling back around. The whole point is focused on, did this say um, human glory or human comfort? Is that the main purpose of where this is going? No. The, 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 uh, the pinnacle towards which we're looking is the revelation of the glory of God. Y'all see that? Okay, so we'll, you, know, you just got to like track with that because that informs uh, not only Isaiah, but again... It goes back and informs and relates to the Old Testament, 
it actually, that, that theme runs all through the Old Testament and all the way to and through the New Testament. When Jesus begins his high priestly prayer, what's Jesus talking about? Talking about glory, right? The manifestation of God's glory. And that the Father will be glorified in the Son and that the Son will be glorified. And they will share in the glory that the Son once shared with the, with the Father before, right? So glory, okay? And of course, and as you've already heard me emphasize in Isaiah chapter 6, um, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, um, Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his, whole earth is full of his glory, glory. right? Okay. So then, you, you know, we won't go all the way through 40, but y'all know 40. I mean, a lot of it is in Handel's Messiah, and, you know, you, you kind of know it. But um, um, that's, that, that's there. Now, um, the whole deal with idolatry is there, and the whole message that the nations are just a drop in the bucket. You put, put your trust in people or nations, you're a fool, and you're an idolater. If you think of yourself as an Englishman, Instead of a servant of the Lord, you're a fool. Uh, nations go down. That's what God says. Idols go down. The gods of the peoples go down. Their favorite teams go down. The New England Patriots will not win the Super Bowl this year, believe it or not. They don't even have a chance. But I thought they'd keep on winning forever. I thought Nick Saban would never die and Alabama will win every single year henceforth. Nope, they're all going down, God says. Um, you need to look to me. Okay, so that's, everybody get that? Okay, so that's, that's going on with, with this big turn. And then in this second main portion of Isaiah, we transition into the servant songs, which we're not going to go into tonight, but those are major, magnificent, and jarring. They break new ground, with the ultimate ground being broken that the true servant of the Lord is going to be pierced for our transgressions, which is shocking. I mean, who expected that? Like a lamb led to the slaughter. He's going to take our sins upon himself. The servant of the Lord. This is how God's glory is going to be revealed. This is how, who would have believed? Like, let's just take a look at that. that uh, I quoted that. Um, well, actually, John quoted it, and I, so I mentioned it um, in the sermon on Sunday when I was tracking through uh, Isaiah's commission, right, with Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 running through the New Testament. Remember how John quotes this? And, and I said that was a um, Gezerah Shabbat. You know, it's, it's like a, a joining of two things, right? So the, um, the suffering servant with Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. These people will not hear. So he, here's the here's the here's the the verse that John couples with 6, 9, and 10. 53, Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm been revealed? Well, we thought the arm was going to be revealed to and through a victorious messianic king riding in with golden armor on a white stallion 
but he grew up before us like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Y'all know the way this goes, right? He's going to be, he's going to get killed. I mean, and nobody accounted him as much. He couldn't even be recognized when he died on the cross. That's the suffering servant there. That's big, right? Okay, then, um, so how do we prepare for God's glory? Isaiah 56 opens the final major segment of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh Jehovah, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and who keeps his hand from doing evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, you may remember this if you really know your Bible, right? You remember the deacon Philip, right? He's on his way on the road to Gaza, and he sees an Ethiopian eunuch reading, right? And here's the guy reading, because remember, side note, historical note, back in ancient times, they read aloud. Everybody read aloud. You know the way, like when you're a kid, you read aloud? That's the way they read. You didn't sit there reading silently, okay? So this guy would have been reading aloud. And we know this guy's rich, by the way, because, like, it's a big deal for a synagogue to have a scroll. This eunuch, who is the treasurer of the Ethiopian queen, who's come to find out about the God of Israel, is on this chariot riding... Y'all remember this, right? Y'all remember this? Okay, all right. So um, he's riding on this chariot. And um, yeah, let's just, I'll just take you over there for a second. Okay, so let's go over to Acts. Okay, so uh, Acts chapter 8. Uh, picking up at verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, everybody with me? Acts 8, 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go um, toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Would you go if God told you to go? He, he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, now, y'all remember Isaiah 56, right? Okay, you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta know Isaiah 56 if this passage is gonna mean as much as it's supposed to mean to you in Acts, okay? Um, you know, Luke just assumes that if you're a serious Christian, you're gonna have read Isaiah. You know it, right? Okay, all right. So, um, uh, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Kandaki, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Now, notice he's a, he's a eunuch, so he's a pretty safe guy if he's otherwise loyal 
to be in charge of all the money, right? Because he's a eunuch. Y'all get this? He doesn't have a mistress. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have anybody else. He doesn't have kids who are saying, Dad, take some of that out of the treasury and give it to us, right? He's a eunuch. Um, He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. Is this guy rich? Yes, this guy is seriously rich, but he's a eunuch. And by the way, under the law of Israel, he cannot go into the court of Israel. He can't go into the court of Gentiles because he's a eunuch. You know, under the law, he's an abomination to the Lord. But wait a minute, the Lord just told Isaiah, the times are coming when the eunuch is going to be a really welcome person in my assembly. Isaiah 56, right? So you've got to know all the scripture to understand what's going down with this, okay? So... (laughs) Um, he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So again, he's got a scroll. He's really rich, and he's reading this aloud. Just guaranteed he's reading it aloud. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him. Why did Philip run to him? It's not just because he's a little bit of distance away from it. What, what does a chariot do? Yeah, Philip's probably in shape, right? And he's probably inspired, too, by the Lord. So anyway, so you get this picture. Philip running alongside a chariot as the eunuch is reading the scroll. Pretty interesting scene, isn't it? Um, Philip ran to him and heard him reading... How did he hear him reading? I already told you, right? He's reading aloud. Heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he, the eunuch, invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Now he's back in the suffering servant, right? Okay, He's in 52-53. Okay. Like a lamb before his shearers is silent, he's in Isaiah 53. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. So, y'all get the parallel, right? He doesn't have any generation because he's killed with no children, the suffering servant. But the Lord is going to give him a generation unending, Right? That's Jesus. How many earthly children did Jesus have? But how many children, so to speak, does Jesus have forever? Like all believers, right? Okay. They're all his little brothers and little sisters, and in a way, his children, right? Okay. And, and, and like a eunuch, right? Eunuch has no children. But guess what? You're going to be part of a big family. You're part of my family, God says. I'll give you heirs. I'm ending. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? This guy is a eunuch. He he cannot be circumcised properly. (laughs) He's, He's a eunuch. What are we going to do? He cannot be allowed under the law of God also into the assembly 
of the court of Gentiles at the temple. And besides that, you know, he's not one of us. We haven't made him come to, I don't know, a potluck supper or something like that. He needs to, you know, this, this just, we, we just don't know what to do with this situation, right? Okay, so let's read what happens. Um, See here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Wow. And they came up out of the water. The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, uh, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. That means Maritima on the Mediterranean coast. Would you say Philip is a pretty spirit-led dude at this point? Yeah, I would say so. But anyway, that all goes back to y'all, so y'all see. That's, that's what I was talking about with Isaiah 52, 53, and 53 in particular, linking also with Isaiah 56 at the beginning of that final segment. And uh, that, let's just go ahead and close out Isaiah um, on the framing here before we move on. So, Isaiah. Wonder how Isaiah is going to close. Where are we headed? Well, in chapter 65, he talks about a new heavens and a new earth. Right? Isaiah 65. And then, in chapter 66... Um, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? Um, And he moves on. And um, let's just close out to over to verse 22 of 66. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For the worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Is judgment still at work in Isaiah when you close out the book? Yes, although we shift from more heavy emphasis on judgment in part one all the way through the very end of part three, you still got judgment going on, just like you do over in Revelation, right? Remember the city, you know, and God himself will dwell with us. And what happens to the dogs and the, you know, the uh, adulterers and, the, uh, you know, the people of greed and all that? They're outside the city wailing and moaning, right? So same kind of thing here. The worm is never going to die. By the way, you've heard that phrase before, right? This is the classic scripture. <laughs> the worm their worm never dies, but um, God is going to make his fellowship with all flesh. Does all flesh mean just all Jewish people? No. This is this growing theme in the second half of Isaiah. It's already in, in the first part of Isaiah, but it's, it's big in two and three, parts two and three. Uh, this is a message, a gospel for all people. And this is in the Old Testament. This is not like after Jesus comes and the apostles somehow are inspired to figure this out. This is Isaiah. This is 700 years before Jesus comes. Everybody with me on this? Is this something that just the apostles figured out? No. 
Do the apostles even get this until Jesus and the Holy Spirit basically pounded them on the head with it? No. Okay. All right. So, yeah. All right. So, um, that's Isaiah. Pretty cool, huh? So, we'll keep circling back to Isaiah. That's Isaiah. Anybody have any questions on these key bridge points with Isaiah? We'll probably go back over them a number of times, and hopefully we'll get to preach on these as well. Okay. Uh, big picture of the canon. Big picture of the canon. Uh, remember, in our Protestant Old Testament, right, there are 39 books arranged with, and remember, Biblia means books. So, is this a book, or are these books? And the answer is yes. This is a book, and these are books. From our point of reference, there are 66 of them. Okay, Everybody with me? One big book, Holy Bible, and a bunch of books that are inspired biblical scriptures. And as, uh, like Bruce was saying, we, we often refer to these, you know, in the Greek, it's going to be graphe, graphe, in um, Latin, it's scriptura, right? Scriptures. Bible, scriptures, all those terms apply. Okay? Uh, now, uh, let's see. Okay, so Jesus, you know, refers to the basic segments of the Bible himself a number of times. Okay? So, um, we looked over at this last time, and in, in, for instance, in Luke 24 when he's revealing the, the gospel truth <laughs> to, um, to the, you know, Clopas or Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus following Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, as it turns out. They're thinking he's just dead. Um, they don't recognize him until he breaks the bread, but as, they're, as, they're, um, as he's teaching them, he teaches them with respect to, remember, the law and the prophets. Uh, that the that the uh, the Messiah was going to have to endure all these things. This was going to happen. Um, so, let's see. They, they talk about that. How how he revealed that to them. Uh, let's see. Verse uh, twenty four, Luke twenty four, verse twenty seven, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Remember, Moses is another way of referring to the law, the first five books, right? The instruction, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. When you see that in the New Testament. More times than not, when you see Moses, you're not talking about primarily the person Moses. You're talking about his books, the five books that come through Moses. Um, and beginning with Moses, he's not talking about the man Moses per se. He's talking about the books. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them um, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, just turn the page, or in my case, you're turning the page, to um, Luke 24... Verse 44, Jesus as his instruction to his disciples. Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, I was already teaching you all this stuff. You guys just weren't paying attention. <laughs> okay, um, That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now what's that? Now we got a trifold reference, right? And what's that in some way, generally at least, a reference to? 
the generally understood or developing understanding for the Jews of the threefold um, composition of Tanakh, right? So the Psalms is the first book in Ketuvim, the writings. So Moses or law or instruction, right? Prophets, former and latter, former including like Samuel, Joshua Judges, for instance, okay? And writings. Everybody with me? However, you know, we're not lockstep with this, and Jesus isn't lockstep with this. Sometimes he says law and prophets. Sometimes he says law, prophets, and psalms, meaning the opening book of the book, or the primary book of the book of the writings. Uh, sometimes he just says law and prophets, or sometimes he says Moses and prophets. So, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew 5, Um, picking up at verse 17 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, what do you think? Do you think Jesus is, is by uh, silence saying, but I'm okay to abolish the writings? What do you think? Now, he means the whole Bible, right? He means the, the Jewish Bible, okay? Um, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Now again, you know, I guess an unbeliever could sit there and poke at you about this. This is like a ridiculous poke, okay? So when Jesus says the law the second time, is he saying, well, the prophets aren't going to be fulfilled, but the law will? No, of course. He's, he's using that as an entree reference to the entire scriptures. Does, it, does anybody have a problem or question about this? Do you all understand what I'm saying? Okay. But you see how he uses these major league references to talk about the scriptures. Got it? So that's the canon. Okay. All right. Good. Let's keep going to last week's handout, and we kind of got through... I got through at least highlighting at least the bold version of the pro promises. Um, I guess, yeah, we got through the conditional promises or the challenge promises of Deuteronomy, right? So let's just pick up on the Davidic covenant promise uh, with 2 Samuel 7. Everybody see the handout, right? And then we'll go to Jeremiah too. So... Let's go to 2 Samuel. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king, this means David, um, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Which is a generally true statement. This guy, Nathan, by the way, is both by gift and by office a prophet. Isaiah is by gift and by prof, uh, office a prophet. Okay, two different issues. Uh, we'll go back and talk about that later. Okay. Okay. Um, but it turns out Nathan should have maybe paused on this issue. <laughs> 
because, but God's going to speak to Nathan on this issue. Uh, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Y'all know that term. I've like pounded that term for you, right? Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of the heavenly armies. Really interesting. God is speaking through Nathan, if you think about it, right? He, he could speak directly to David. He speaks directly to David sometimes. But in this case, he wants the prophet to go and tell him this. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you... A great name. Ooh, we are getting into big covenant promises here. This is big stuff, folks. Um, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you now we're, now we're ratcheting way up. This is way up here. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You've heard me talk about this before. Remember, we got a pun or a play, uh, double entendre, you know, triple entendre, on bait, the Hebrew word bait. There's another word, a call for temple. He's using the word house, house, house. And y'all get this, right? House means family. House means dynasty. House means shelter. House means enduring stability related to a name that he's going to give him. All that stuff's going on there. Okay, house, house, house. Um, I will make you a house. Is he saying I'm going to build you a palace? No, that's not what he's talking about. Uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and uh, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast, my chesed, my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be, made, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, here's a vision that Nathan got, right? Not just words, vision. Nathan sees this. God shows him this. Nathan spoke to David. Now... Uh, Solomon does build a temple, but uh, Solomon goes down, right? I mean, his, his line almost goes down. 
but it turns out we got, you know, connections to the line, and we get over to the New Testament. We turn to the New Testament, and we've already highlighted the covenant promises to Abraham, right? About how everybody's going to be blessed, and how he's going to have descendants without number, and you can't even count them, and how's that going to be? I mean, there, there are a lot of Jews, but I mean, compared to like some people, there's not that many. Um, how's it going to be that his just, he, you know, Abraham and all the nations, the ends of the earth are going to be blessed through him. And Okay, so we get to Matthew 1, 1. Another key juncture point in the Bible. You obviously would want to pay attention to the first verse in the New Testament, right? It makes sense. Remember these covenant promises now. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David... What we just read, go back and circle that, son of Abraham. Go back, Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 21. Okay? All that. Okay, now, do you feel like you've covered a lot of Bible? We've covered a lot of Bible, right? There's a lot for you to go back and look at the Bible. So now, let me at least start looking at these maps with y'all for eight minutes or so. We'll, we'll see what we can do. Uh, okay. Everybody on Facebook, hopefully you're accessing the materials. These, the, old, the big map booklet has been posted for a while. The new one we posted today. Reed will have posted that today because I worked on this one today. The, the supplement for, <laughs> for February or whatever we want to call it. Okay. So everybody, let's look at the big map. Big map book. Okay. Remember now, like on, the, on page one, this green, and then if you take it down through, see where Biblos and Tyre and Jericho are? And then down to the green of the Nile River and stuff. That's basically the Fertile Crescent. Y'all see the way the crescent goes like this? Everybody see how that's kind of a crescent? From the, see, this is the Tigris and Euphrates rivers here. That's the Persian Gulf. Y'all know about the Persian Gulf because we've, we've had soldiers over around there for a long time, right? For that, so that, that little body of water down where the Tigris and Euphrates go down... That's the Persian Gulf down there. Everybody see that? Okay. And um, the um, southern part would be generally over time known as the land of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Okay. The northern part of that big green swath heading up along the Tigris and Euphrates would be known as Assyria. Okay, Assyria. And then you cut over and you go down through. This, this area over here is called the Levant, okay? Um, kind of west of the Jordan River. And that's part of the Fertile Crescent, too. But remember, I showed you how narrow the strip is at some parts. You, you know, you, that's, there's parts of, of Israel that are not fertile, okay? At the level of the Nile and the Tigris and Euphrates and stuff like that. Okay, everybody with me on that, right? And remember how all major powers... And civilizations or empires that want to arise, they want to control this thing right here, the Fertile Crescent, because this is the rich of the rich, right? This is like, um, I don't know, um, Beverly Hills or something like that. I mean, this, okay. But, but, but you go out in the Mediterranean, you want that too, because that's where, you know, and you also, by the way, if you control this, part of the deal you're controlling are the trade routes over to India and up to China. 
Okay, that's the juncture you're actually in. I'll come back to this more, but you know, you're, it's not just about this. It's about junctures heading out. Like, like we look at the Bible with junctures on the map, geopolitically, junctures are a big deal. Okay, so um, that's that. And yeah, yeah, you can see on um, on the second map on this page one. See that Mesopotamia? Uh, Mesopotamia means between the rivers. Okay. Y'all know, like, the Potomac is from the name for river. Everybody with me? Okay, all right. So, all right. So, uh, so um, and then uh, Assyria up here, right? Then you see Syria. Then you see Israel, Palestine. Anatolia, that's a big deal up there, too. Okay? That's present-day Turkey. That's Asia Minor for Paul's purposes. All that stuff. That's the Hittites domain in, um, in the Bronze Age, okay? But by the Stone Age, the Hittite Empire has collapsed in this little vacuum you run into. Okay, so um, let's go over to page three again. Page three of the big map handout. Remember, there are highways, okay? And remember... Along the Fertile Crescent, there is the King's Highway that goes through what we would call Jordan, okay? But the best highway, the best highway, and the dominant highway that you would like to go through, if you're going from Egypt up through the Fertile Crescent or from the Fertile Crescent down into Egypt, would be along the Mediterranean coast, right? And that is the way of the sea. And the favorite route, if you're heading up to, like Assyria, or by the way, wanting to hit the connectors with the trade routes going to India and China, you want to cut over to Damascus, okay, and head up to Damascus, which means you are going to go Jezreel Valley, you know, right by Megiddo, okay, and then you're going to head up just north of the Sea of Galilee. You're going to bop along the Sea of Galilee and head north to Damascus. Now, if you control those passageways, what do you get to charge when people carry valuable stuff through them? Why do you think there are all these tax collectors when Jesus is involved in places like Galilee? Okay? There's a lot of money. And when you have soldiers at fortresses like Megiddo, why Solomon, one reason why Solomon has these fortified areas like Megiddo, because it's right there on the way of the sea. It's not just that he says, it'd be kind of, I, I like that area, that looks pretty over there. Let's, let's build a fortress on it. He's building fortress cities related to all this passageway stuff going on here on this map that you guys see on page three. Okay? These people are not stupid, they are just as sophisticated as we are about commerce and politics and everything else. Okay? Everybody with me on that? Okay, we'll come back to this more. But remember, one of the things this is telling you, if you drill down into this a little bit more, is that um, Israel is right. A lot of Israel, the northern kingdom, is right on this highway. Jerusalem's not on this highway. You can take a, you can take a side road through Jerusalem, but it, it's not the obvious thing that you need. 
Okay, so, oh yeah, okay, so let me go actually over to the next page. I guess this is page five. Yeah, this really lays out this whole, like, ancient times pretty well for you. Not ancient, ancient times, but somewhat ancient times. Like at the time of the Exodus, okay? Everybody see Troy up there in Anatolia. You've heard of Troy. Helen of Troy, right? Did the Greeks and the Trojans always get along? No. So you're going to have stories going on up there, right? In the, Mycenae, the Mycenaean Empire for the Greeks is the big thing right now in 1400 B.C., okay? Uh, it, it's not shown on this map, but I can tell you that, okay? Um, notice the Hittite Empire. That is an empire up there in what would be present-day Turkey. Y'all see that, right? Hittite Empire. Um, that empire collapses, collapses around 1100 B.C. You see Egypt, right? The 19th New Kingdom dynasty collapses around 1100 B.C. Then you got Babylonia over there in the purple. You got Assyria in the green. Um, everybody see that, right? Well, what happened is around 1100 B.C., for various reasons. Oh, by the way, um, Troy's gone. I told you the Hittite Empire collapses. The Mycenaean uh, uh, civilization recedes all of a sudden around the same time. And uh, there is this vacuum that goes on around the time leading up to Saul and then David and then Solomon. And then the early, early, the first century or so of, you know, what, what is unified Israel and then broken up Judah and Israel. So they're in this vacuum, okay? So just like I told you, there's an Indian summer going on right before, you know, during the reign of King Uzziah. There's a big Indian sim summer going on for several hundred years where, yeah, they have to worry about the Philistines over on the coast. Um, Tyre, now that means Phoenicia, okay? But by the way, as you can imagine, now remember, you look out to the west, this is the Mediterranean Sea Basin. So who do you think is very involved along the Mediterranean coast? People who are good at sailing and maritime commerce. By the way, are the Judeans good at that? The goat herders and sheep herders from the hills? No. The Philistines down south, the Phoenicians up north. The Phoenicians are a very advanced Mediterranean civilization. You ever heard of Lisbon in Portugal? Around this time, they are establishing, well, around 1200 BC, they're establishing a port city all the way over to Lisbon. And they're at Tyre and Sidon, too. I mean, that's, that's a sophisticated civilization going on. But it's not actually an empire at the level of Assyria or Egypt. Those guys go down during this little vacuum, and uh, it's the perfect time for God to establish this kingdom under David and then Solomon. Because the only people they have to beat are the Philistines and the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Aramites from Damascus. I mean, significant foes, but nothing compared to Assyria and Babylonia and Egypt, or by the way, the Hittites, if they're powerful. But none of them are for several hundred years. 
Uh, what got me off on this other map? I guess we won't have time really to go to it. I, I do. I, let me just show y'all. Anyway, I, I started looking. I was going to tell y'all about Scatopolis, which is Beit Shan in the Old Testament as a key juncture point. We'll have to come back to that. We are obviously not going to get to that. But that got me off on the on the whole Scythian thing, which got me off on. Let me make y'all aware of the larger context. Okay, so this new handout map thing that you got, bigger, bigger picture. Just keep this in mind. We'll come back to it. Okay, everybody see Anatolia here and kind of those sweeping lines where the Fertile Crescent is, what I've shown you, okay? You know the way the Fertile Crescent, you, you can see the Tigris and Euphrates there, right? Everybody see Tigris and Euphrates here? Can you all see this? I hope you all can see this, okay? Tigris and Euphrates kind of right there. Um, see, up above Arabia, everybody see what says Arabia? By the way, do, do you want to develop your civilization in Arabia? What do you think? or the Fertile Crescent, which would you choose if you were in a byland? The Desert of Arabia or the Fertile Crescent? Obviously, Fertile Crescent. Okay. So look up above Arabia. Y'all see Tigers and Euphrates there? That's what we're focusing on a lot with the Bible. And then you sweep down through Israel down to Egypt. Y'all see that, right? But I wanted to show you, so this got me off on this. So I've done this whole separate map thing to remind you. Look up above. You see all those lines going up above? Intersecting intersecting with this fertile crescent near east stuff that we're looking at are these developing people groups of indo-europeans now they start over in the east in asia and they move west so i want to make you all aware of this not only for bible times but also it's just fascinating to understand that most of our ancestors that they were not perpetually in some place like england okay they were way over here sweeping back uh, in the 4th and 3rd millennium. They were sweeping up places like Iran okay, and coming over. Those are the Indo-European language groups and DNA groups. If you look over at page 2, there you get the interaction of the DNA. I mean, this is able to be tracked out now. You'll see the the black circle and the red circle above it, that's the interaction of the civilizations that not only give you your Bible, but also lead to the Germanic tribes, the Celts, the Anglo-Saxons, all those groups, they're on this route coming from the east to the west. Did y'all know that? It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Uh, look at look at all these all these all these language groups that originally come out of right above where we're talking about. Y'all see those lines? Okay. So um, we'll come back to this, but that's pretty interesting too. I just thought as long as we're doing big picture, I'm interested by big big picture, and you got this intersection stuff of these Indo-European groups who end up, many of whom end up being not just in places like Iran, but come all the way over to places like. You know, Germany and Romania and places like that, and England uh, eventually, and the Celts moving up this way. The Celts come, the Celts come this way, and then and then they come up, okay, in Europe. Uh, they're coming, they're sweeping through there, and there's going to be interaction. And the Scythians and the Persians, they're going to be deal deal breakers and deal makers with these empires that rise and fall that we're dealing with with Isaiah. Babylon, Persia, Greece, 
the Scythians, the Medes, all these kind of people, they're interacting. It's, it's, it's not a stagnant situation. So, anyway, I got interested in that. I thought I should show you all some maps that kind of, the whole thing dealing with this Jewish or Hebrew city that the Egyptians once occupied called um, Beit Shan being named Scythopolis, which means uh, the place of the Scythians. Um, it's one of the capitalist cities in New Testament times. Anyway, I decided, yeah, let's talk about the Scythians. So I've got, I've got some maps with the Scythians for you. Okay, uh, let's, any questions? I gave you a lot to think about, didn't I? Okay, good. You, you, you see that, that it's not just a verse here or there. It's part of a much bigger story. And isn't God awesome the way he has used all this? It's kind of amazing. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Uh, we give thanks, Lord, for your calling, your purposes, and reminding us, Lord, that um, your history intersecting with human history, Lord, and, and the way you are telling your story and working out your story is amazing, incredible, and beyond our comprehension in some ways, Lord, but you call us to know your word, and through knowing your word, to begin to understand the course of what you're doing and your gospel purposes. And so we give thanks for that opportunity tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you all.